we were in the back of one of those stores, we would see trucks picking up other recyclable materials. They would take cardboard and plastic and they'd load them on the empty trailers that were going back to the distribution centers. And it was at that moment that we really had, you know, one of the first light bulb moments, which was, wait a minute, why can't we do the same for food waste? Why can't food waste that doesn't get sold at a supermarket go on the back of these trucks through reverse logistics and allow us to aggregate that material just like any other recyclable? And that opened up for us all sorts of different opportunities to be able to bring scale and in many ways simplify some of the supply chain and be able to aggregate food waste in ways that hadn't been done before. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. As frequent listeners to the show will know by now, the circular economy is one of our favorite topics to explore here in the realm of doing well while doing good. I think there's something really cool and appealing, and also uniquely American, about finding creative uses to keep things from going to waste. It's part of our eternal frontier spirit, the principle of self-reliance, practicality, and ingenuity that's helped generations of Americans to meet and ultimately triumph over the challenges of the day. And in our own day, waste is one big challenge. Every year, the U.S. alone generates 100 million tons of food waste. 50% of that food waste is lost entirely, going either into a landfill or incinerator. The decomposition of that organic waste is responsible for 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And just for supermarkets alone, it's a $25 billion loss of value. So figuring out how to reduce and reuse all this waste isn't just socially and environmentally responsible, it just makes good business sense. But with every challenge we face, the issue of waste is not a simple one. There are many reasons that food ends up getting thrown away, and very few of them are based on actual negligence or wastefulness. Unforeseen weather events impact the supply chain and a produce shipment arrives late to the supermarket, meaning they can't sell all of it before it loses its freshness. Guidelines on food donations are crucial for ensuring the safety of those who need food assistance, but they require time-consuming sorting of unsold products which many stores just don't have the manpower to afford. Or, of course, food does just sometimes go bad. The point is, food waste is a complex problem, but it's also one that creates an opportunity for companies to offer innovative solutions. I'm excited to have on the show this week Nick Whitman, co-founder and COO of Divert, an impact technology company whose multi-level approach to tackling food waste is one of the most intriguing and comprehensive I've ever seen. Because Divert isn't just improving logistics and streamlining food donation, they're actually turning food waste into renewable energy. Nick's been through the full journey of building Divert, from an idea in a garage to a thriving, solution-oriented company. He's a treasure trove of business knowledge for aspiring founders, and also just a fun guy to talk shop with. It was awesome having him on the show. So, without further ado, let's get started. Thanks so much for joining us today, Nick. I'm really excited to get to talk. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. So grew up in the uh, Boston area, outside of Boston, never left. Typical Massachusetts person. We think about leaving, but we don't actually leave. <laughs> Amazing parents, was really lucky in that, you know, had dedicated mom and dad and, and great family life. Ended up uh, going to college uh, up in Vermont, Middlebury College, which I, which I loved and uh, super fortunate to sort of have, have those experiences. As you kind of look back, are there moments from childhood or, or Middlebury where you identify the theme of where you ended up in life? Like, did you know what you wanted to be? Did you have a sense of the path you were going to pursue? 
No, I always love the people who know from age seven that they're what they're going to do in life. And that was never me. I think I wandered around a little bit. I spent some time figuring out what I was good at, what I was, what I was not good at. And, you know, for me, the journey became apparent much later in life, almost when I was in my thirties. For me, it was a, it was a more of a late blooming situation than the the child uh, who knows at age eight what they want to do. I, yeah, I have such envy for those individuals. I was not that way either. I feel like there's a, a growing appreciation for the generalists, those of us who have become generalists in life and have bounced from, you know, across different trajectories and, and found ourselves a home nonetheless. Well, I, I think so. I mean, look, here at Divert, I know we'll talk about later, but I have a huge appreciation for the generalist. I think in many ways, that was my only path was to be able to be pretty decent at a bunch of different things rather than specialized. But I also figured out late in life that I was ADHD. And so for me, that was a really big piece of the puzzle. And so I went on medication and that was a huge life-changing event for me because it started to allow me to focus in a way that I hadn't before. And and that was when I went back to business school, came out of business school, we found a divert, but it was a huge piece of, of why maybe the journey was a little bit longer and a little bit windier before then. But also gives you more experiences before you get there, which I think is valuable. Absolutely. Like I, I fully subscribe to the Steve Jobs view that you can only put everything together in retrospect. One of the things I did before business school was I was in the recruiting field and spent some time. And I was, <laughs> I like to joke that I was, I was not very effective recruiter, which I think is, is, is probably true. But it's one of the most, it's been one of the most important things as we've grown divert and built divert is to be able to understand how people tick, understand what roles they can do, what career they had before they've come to us and how that might help us in our journey. And so in retrospect, that was an amazing experience for me. And so you do go to business school and you focused on renewable energy in business school, which is a bit of a unique and narrow sector. So curious how you decided on that and, and where your head was at that point in time. Yeah, I went to went to Babson, did the Babson MBA program, was a great experience. I went there because of the entrepreneurial focus. I, you know, love the program that they have built. You know, for me, the renewable energy piece and the finance piece was always a passion, was trying to figure out how we can be more sustainable in this world. The finance piece was more, more a function of that was the missing element when I thought of my background. And one of the things I wanted to get out of business school was, you know, come out of that with more of a quantitative skill set. That focus was less about me being, you know, finding joy in finance. <laughs> the focus there was really to round out my skill set and be able to come out and start to look at what makes a business tick and understand what ROI means and how do you how do you run models to look at long-term projections and you know what's the value of that. You said there that you walked in knowing you had a passion for renewable energy. So clearly you had early on some spark of interest that led you down this path. Do you remember what that was or when that began, why that began? I mean, I would say, I think we have a, I have a big appreciation for efficiency. I think growing up, we spent a lot of time out in nature. We own some, some campgrounds, just land up in Vermont where we go camping. Like being outside, being in the wilderness is a huge part of our family's life. And there's an efficiency in nature. There's an efficiency in how the environment works. And I think we don't often see that in the real world or in the world that we all live in. And so that focus on efficiency was really what drove me to sustainability, this idea of how do we create more efficient, more sustainable ecosystems you know, in the business world that 
makes sense and makes sense for consumers, makes sense for businesses. Uh, obviously, they have to have an, you know, an economic payback. But if you can figure out how to have both an economic payback and an environmentally sustainable business model, then you know, to me, there's a really outsized impact that you get from combining those. Right. Well, let's jump in and talk a little bit about that. Give us the origin story for Divert. You know, it's not, it, there's not in a eureka moment, I would say. I, I, people love to celebrate the light bulb moment. And for us, there were a lot of different pivot points along the way. You know, the biggest impetus for us was in the early days. We were in a garage in Burlington, Massachusetts, processing food waste, making a bunch of mistakes like all different entrepreneurs do. And, you know, for us, starting to understand that food waste problem. And so from those early days, we were really focused on why this problem existed. How can we solve it? How can we tackle it from a unique point? And that focus on food waste was really the impetus. You know, it's such a challenging problem in the U.S. And the ability for us to go after that problem is, is really what spurred us. I've always been frustrated by, you know, excess food. I've always been frustrated by, you know, you buy the strawberries and you get back and the next day they're already moldy. Like, why does that happen? That challenge, that problem and figuring out how we solve that was, was really what Divert was created to do, was to bring unique insight into solving this, this core challenge that exists in the supply chain. So how, how did you guys get into the garage in the first place? What was the conversations that kind of led to the team that, that was there standing around making those mistakes, learning those things, and figuring out the pivot points? I was coming out of Babson, a business school at that point in time. I'm not sure I was employable <laughs> in, in other roles. <laughs> I think we had to go start a company for me to get a job. And for us, it was, it was this idea of being able to make a difference and make a dent early on and to go build something. We were different in that we did not have a technology or an idea that we were going to the market with to go fundraise with. We started around the problem. You know, and so for us, we started with a problem and we were somewhat agnostic or indifferent as to how we solve that problem. That to me is a very big difference between a lot of companies that start and get funded who go out and try to raise a ton of money behind a technology, they then get wed to that technology, they get wed to that solution, and they're off on that track. For us, it was, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to do it with large retailers. And now let's figure out the right way to do it. And we made, some, we made a bunch of mistakes early on. We, we started working directly at individual stores, at each individual supermarket and building machines to go there. And we learned early on that that was not going to be the right path. So we pivoted, ultimately integrated different technologies along the way. But for us, that focus on problem and that, that sort of relentless focus on driving value to customers to solve that problem was really the impetus for the business. And that's what spurred us over 16 years to continue to drive innovation and, and deliver results for our customers. Yeah. You mentioned building solutions for individual stores. Tell us about the, the first kind of product or system that you guys deployed, the alpha system, and, and how that came to be, and then what you learned from that and, and where that took you next. So we went to uh, Hannaford Brothers, one of our first customers. We partnered with them. They funded the development of a unit about the size of a shipping container that would go out an individual Hanford Brothers store. And we built it. And I think right off the bat, we realized that you know, the, I, the concept in our heads was very different than what actually was going to happen at an individual stores. And so when we implemented the system, we very quickly realized we were getting different quantities of food than we thought. 
we were getting more contamination into these systems than we thought. And the actual challenge of operating these systems in a real world environment was going to be really difficult. You know, so for example, how do you stop employees from putting too much trash in? And what happens in that situation? Well, you know, the machine goes down, right? And okay, now if you're if that's your business model and you've got hundreds and hundreds of these machines breaking at different stores, like that creates all sorts of different challenges. Early on, we I think we hired a local plumber to pipe the system. And plumbers like to do everything in 90 degree turns. Well, food waste, you know, when you have you're getting flowers or you're getting rose stems don't do great with 90 returns. And so we learned early on, like, okay, you know, that's not going to work. And so all of these little learnings and mistakes and scars, you start to build up what works, what doesn't work. How do we get scale in this industry? And when we were in, in the back of one of those stores, we would see trucks picking up other recyclable materials. They would take cardboard and plastic and they'd load them on the empty trailers that were going back to the distribution centers. And it was at that moment that we really had, you know, one of the first light bulb moments, which was, wait a minute, why can't we do the same for food waste? Why can't food waste that doesn't get sold at a supermarket go on the back of these trucks through reverse logistics and be, and allow us to aggregate that material just like any other recyclable. And that opened up for us all sorts of different opportunities to be able to bring scale and in many ways, simplify some of the supply chain and be able to aggregate food waste in ways that hadn't been done before. Let's pause and, and give folks a, a bit of a primer on how that food waste is a new product, how it has a new life. So whether it's in that shipping container size you know, unit at the back of the store, or you bring it back to a facility and address it at scale, what effectively was that first kind of vision for what you were going to do with that food waste? And kind of explain for folks, I mean, effectively, what is anaerobic digestion is the question. <laughs> okay. Let me take a step back too. So. Food waste is not what maybe everybody thinks of food waste. Food, people think of food waste as what we see at home, stuff you don't eat, it's rotting within a day. When we think of food waste, we think of food that didn't sell. So we think of it actually as wasted food. And you think about a supermarket, it's the apple that you keep passing over because you want the perfect apple and the slightly blemished one, basically they come and then pull that away. And when you look at all of the food at a supermarket that they don't sell, it starts to look less like food waste and a lot more like an opportunity. And so for us, we look at that and say, what's the first thing we can do that? Let's try to get that into the food donation network. Let's try to get that to those who need it. And then for what we can't do, then let's bring that back through their supply chain into what we call it, you know, anaerobic digestion. And so what that means really is aggregating a lot of material. You know, so for us, it's, it could be 100,000 tons a year at one facility. And we take that and we liquefy that material. And so when you liquefy that material, you pull off the plastic, you pull off the baby carrot bag, the yogurt container, and now you have a very clean liquid slurry, which we then put into large tanks. And so anaerobic digestion really is the process that goes on within this large tanks that are the materials heated up. It's the creation of, of biogas in that process. And then that biogas can be pulled off and cleaned up and put into the pipeline. And so we call the whole process anaerobic digestion, but really there's a few different steps along the way, which is the liquefaction, the creation of, of biogas, and then the insertion of biogas into the gas infrastructure. And you mentioned the Eureka moment, seeing those logistics trucks taking back 
recycling supplies and figured, okay, this is something we could do. How long was it until you guys deployed that solution and, and began to kind of scale it? So we started off early in 2009. We approached Kroger. Kroger owns Ralph's and Food for Less out in California. And we approached them about building an anaerobic digestion facility to process all the material in their Ralph's and Food for Less stores in California. Probably took two and a half years to get that fully approved and built. And for us, we were you know, a few people in a basement. And the only way at that point in time we could really structure, because we had no balance sheet and we'd raised a little bit of money, but not much, was to have them own all of the equipment. We use their site. It sits on their site. We were smart enough to be able to retain all the IP, but ultimately it was their assets. And, and that worked out really well for us because it allowed us to not have to go raise $20, 30000000 million of equity capital. They effectively funded our, our R&D. And we built a, a project together that's still running today. You know, we'd probably do a few things differently that we've learned, but still running today. It's a great project and they've been an amazing partner as we've developed that. And then how did you take that and scale it? What was the process to, to really expand? So once we were up and running with that, we went and got another customer, uh, Stop and Shop, who's in Massachusetts. And we did the same thing again. We actually this time did a lot of our own design brought our own equipment, our own process design into that. We developed an operational team to operate that facility instead of them. And that was up and running in 2015. But at that point in time, two things happened for us. One was we started to look at the scaling of the business and and think, boy, it's going to be really hard to build this many systems by getting customers to fund them and get them to fund them for a non-core project, right? They want to build supermarkets and we're asking them to go build large-scale processing facilities. And so that that felt like a really hard value proposition to get customers to continue to do that. Uh, so that was one piece of it. You know, the second piece of it is is we started to see some of the different challenges that that we were having in that process and realized that we need to do more to understand where the food's coming from and how it's coming to us. And so we started to develop technology, in-house technology around RFID tracking. We built our own hardware. We built, designed some of our own software to, to track this material and to understand where it's coming from. So even though it's all stop and shop stores or Kroger stores, which store are we getting contamination from? Can we go then identify that store and start to work with them to train them better, to show them, hey, this food should be going into donation or this food shouldn't be sent to us because it has too much packaging whatever it might be. But that led us on a very interesting path around how do we use data to shine light into places that allows us to make unique insights into their business. As we grew the business, this was 2017, 2018, we started to focus on developing a data team, developing technology to do that. And we also started to look at how do we go off-site with these solutions. So instead of asking our customer to fund them, how do we start to think about funding them ourselves, building them away from their distribution centers and starting to own and operate those on our own to be able to capture a lot of that value? You mentioned kind of the increasing importance of data. I hear, as I listen, I hear you consistently talking about logistics as kind of the primary, one of the primary drivers of what's happening in the back end or what's required to succeed. I know that obviously the the topic du jour is is AI, and so I'm I'm curious right now as you look at kind of the technology side of Divert, 
How, how has that helped you? How is that helping you? How are you guys looking at that going forward? Talk to us about kind of the tech perspective here. Well, look, technology is an, an important part of our business. It's an important part of what we do in terms of how we understand what's really happening within the food value chain. At the end of the day, though, we can't just be a tech business. And, and I think too many people will gravitate towards the technology side because it brings really high valuations and it brings a lot of excitement. And we could talk about that because we're doing a ton of stuff. Sure. With, we're doing some stuff with AI. We're doing a bunch of uh, really interesting work with neural nets. We're doing a bunch of really interesting work on, on software development and technology. But at the end of the day, you also have to process this material. You have to get your hands dirty. And that is such a meaningful, fundamental part of what we do right. that I sometimes worry that we do spend too much time talking about technology and data because we have to build this infrastructure. We have to create sustainable infrastructure in this country to manage food waste. And that's why we're building 30 facilities over the next eight years to get within 100 miles of 80% of the U.S. population. And then once that's done, yeah. great. Now we also have a, a foundation to start to use data, to understand why is all this material coming to the infrastructure? Why are we seeing too many bananas that should have been donated? Let's go upstream and start to work with our customer partners to figure out how do we streamline their operations, their logistics to make sure we get this food sold, right? If they're a supermarket, let's get it sold first. That's great for their business. Can't get sold, let's get it donated. And let's make sure that where it's coming to us as a last resort. And you said with the next 30 facilities in the next eight years, you'll be within... 100 miles of 80% of the population. I'm curious how how important is the is local the local nature of of having the solution, the infrastructure locally. In this space it's 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 critically important. Otherwise, you know, you're driving material or you're railing material hundreds and hundreds of miles away, you're effectively yeah. exporting the issue to somebody else. So, you know, you have to build local infrastructure. And we have to look at this from a total carbon accounting standpoint to understand what is the right solution for every single food waste, every single stakeholder. And for us, that means local infrastructure. That means building the infrastructure in that area to keep that food sure. there and not send the material elsewhere. When you talk about stakeholders and just think, listening to your answer on the importance of local solutions, what has the reaction been? How has the relationship been with, with policymakers across the spectrum from local to state to federal are, are folks engaging are they excited are they following are they trying to support you know is this something that's on people's radar screens in the environmental policy world in the the ag world the food world are folks kind of engaging on this food waste has been a it's been a really important topic in the last couple of years i think we've been really thrilled to see uh, the momentum around that that wasn't always the case you know 10 15 yeah. years ago I think it's really important that we have the discussion around landfill capacity. We have the discussion around total carbon accounting. Let's let those drive solutions. We do have states that are, you know, have landfill bans, right? And that I think does have an impact. Uh, I think it's it's in many ways the right way to do it. But we also work in a lot of states where they don't have landfill bans, and we have customers who are working with us because they're meeting ESG mandates. And so I think sure. the policy sure. landscape is very complicated and different customers are doing it for different reasons. And I think that's okay. Sure. Like that's a productive environment. I, and by no means do we want to be a business that is totally driven by political mandates because I think then you're right. at the whim of you know the next administration. And so 
for us, building a healthy business that can take advantage of smart mandates in, in certain states, that's great. But we better build a business also that can operate in states with no mandates and you know, allows us to you know, figure out creative, efficient solutions that will still deliver value for these customers, uh, regardless of what state they're in. When you think back to the early days and I guess st- starting with Kroger, but Stop and Shop as well, what do you think got them to say yes? You're, uh, you know, like you said, a couple of guys in the basement relying on them for the capital. Obviously, you're giving them a value proposition, which let's hear what that pitch is. Yeah. But that first one, someone's taking a leap of faith. And I'm curious if you have a sense for how you got there. My co-founder, you know, Ryan Began, he and I worked pretty well over the years. I think he did a lot of the a lot of the selling. And I think one of the things that we both have in common is that I think we're relatively pragmatic. I think we are pretty honest. And customers tended to gravitate to the fact that they knew that if we said we were going to do something, we were going to try to do it. And if we said we screwed up, we were going to try to fix it. And so very early yeah. on, we never tried to present ourselves as being yeah. bigger than we were. We never tried to say, you know, we're going to be this company changing the world. You know, early on, it was literally about how do we give them something that we think adds value to their business and we fully support. And I think that credibility was what sold them early on. It's why in 15, 16 years, we've never lost a customer. We're very proud of that. You know, we don't have thousands of customers, but nonetheless, there's a mentality and a culture in Divert. And I think that engenders trust that that over time has has allowed us to do some pretty interesting, innovative work here where, where other people haven't haven't done it. When was the moment between 2009 and you know when you thought, okay, we've got something and we're gonna this is a success, a successful business we got here? <laughs> I'm not even sure I'll say I say that today. Ryan and I are we're, we're fortunate to still be at this. We're fortunate to be doing something we really love. We have moments where we think we're 10 years ahead and we have moments where we think we're 10 years behind. And, you know, I, I think to your question on when we knew it's success, you know, I don't think we're there yet. I think, I think we view success probably a little differently. We view success in terms of impact and the impact we're making and not necessarily around, you know, hype or, money raised you know for us it's about how much impact can we do and how much we make and so we're we're on a a track right now in terms of impact that that feels good it feels like we are making a difference and we are doing something that's really unique in this world but we have a long way to go on that mission to get where we want to go where you know we feel like we can make a difference in food waste we can make a difference in greenhouse gas emissions and uh, i'm not sure we'll ever fully feel like a success until we've you know, gotten there. Well, and you, um, I think, mentioned something that I, I, is a real consistent theme in my conversations with folks, which is you're building the business. You're not building a philanthropic organization or a charity. What you're doing, you need to succeed at and be profitable to continue to scale. To to build thirty more in eight years requires a lot of success and profitability and cash flow leading up to it. So, how do you reconcile or, or align in your mind the reality that you're building a product that truly built to make an impact? but you're doing so in a way that has to be profitable to succeed. How do you kind of align profit and, and principle? It's always a challenge. It also, in my view, tends to change over time, depending on where you are as a company. And again, it's very personal, right? Different companies may look at this differently. For us, focusing 100% on sustainability means we may not be around in two years, and therefore we're going to have no impact. 
So for, for me, the goal is to have a long-term impact, and therefore you have to figure out a modulated way to do that uh, to ensure your success and ensure that customers want to use you. What does that mean? That means that we have to create solutions that save them money. We can't go in there telling them that this is going to be a cost. It's not realistic. Now, how much savings can we give them? How impactful are the sustainability programs that we create? Like That's all sort of within the, the gray area that we get to pull levers to figure out what works and what's going to make us a sustainable business over time from a profitability standpoint. And so when we look at how we've grown the business over time, that focus on on creating profitable solutions that are also sustainable for customers has been sort of the benchmark. That's almost inevitable in, in, in a capital society where you have to you have to be able to focus on that value and that uh, that profitability piece. You can't ignore that. Yeah. It seems like within the last year, as you mentioned, there's been more movement kind of attention um, spotlight on on the topic of food waste. But I still think a lot of folks don't understand the magnitude of it and don't understand the implications of it and don't understand the downstream implications of it. Talk us through kind of the actual starting point problem that Divert and, and a lot of folks in this space are trying to solve. How do you look at the problem itself that, that you're trying to impact? Look, I, I, there's a couple ways to look at this. I, let's look at the macro stats first, just from a, a pure number standpoint. There's 40 million tons of food waste in the U.S. annually. You know, it contributes eight to ten percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Organic matter takes up about forty percent in landfills, and landfills are are estimated space will drop about fifteen percent in the next five years. So we have this sort of significant food waste challenge, creates a significant greenhouse gas challenge, and it's very solvable. And on top of that, when you think about food waste from all of the inputs that go into it, all of the time, energy, fuel, land, water, like it's a, it's a really intensive process to get food to the plates and then to have it go unused is a huge inefficiency. But what we often see, you know, what you may see at home or what I see at home is it on a very sort of micro scale. You see like the, the, the strawberries that go, that go wasted. You've overordered at the supermarket. You look at it, a regular supermarket chain, we see the bin of food that comes back with perfectly good food in that. You know, I think that's what really gets us frustrated is why is this happening? You know, we think about the scale of the problem and how we're then going to solve that. It becomes this, this really unique, challenging, complex problem that there is no silver bullet for. Right. It's funny. I never actually thought about it this way until you just said it, but there's a really interesting kind of macroeconomic inefficiency here, right? With every increase in, in production above and beyond the actual demand, like the actual demand, not the commercial demand, but the, the actual product being consumed. For every increase in supply that's not captured by demand, you have all sorts of cost inputs that go up socially and cost inputs for real for the agricultural community that's that's growing it, that fertilizer and, and man hours of the farmers. And it really, food waste at its core is, is a terrible market inefficiency before it even gets to the consumer. That should have been my answer. There it is. <laughs> I didn't think about it. So you, just, you, you gave it to me. We're going to replay your answer. <laughs> I completely agree. It's, 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 it's a very frustrating inefficiency for a variety of different reasons. And it's, it, and it's a challenging one. And let's extend the solution one extra step. You are creating a product out of the waste on the back end and a product that, that is a, you know alternative fuel source that is cleaner for, for many folks, considered cleaner by many folks. 
Can you just give us two seconds on the sustainability of biogas, just for folks that aren't familiar? Sure. You know, renewable natural gas is created out of our process. We put that into the existing natural natural gas infrastructure. So there, there's an efficiency there where we are able to use existing infrastructure. It's less carbon intensive from a you know from, from an environmental standpoint than traditional fuels, and it allows us to offset a significant number of of greenhouse gases that many of our customers or other uh, stakeholders in the supply chain currently use. And so it's, it's a really efficient byproduct of our process. When we think about our process, you know, we get about two-thirds of our revenues from that waste side and about a third from the renewable natural gas side. And so it's not, a, it's not the full driver of our business. It's, you know, we're not a renewable natural gas company. It's an efficient way to utilize the material and ultimately have it be a beneficial impact to operations and to society. What I think is interesting, again, there's this theme in a lot of conversations I get to have where entrepreneurs have found mutually beneficial solutions or solutions that win on multiple angles with, you know, cost efficiencies for the customer and a new fuel source, new revenue stream, or there's, there's, it's a variety of these angles that all combine to create something that's uniquely profitable and uniquely impactful. And I'm wondering, as I listen to you talk about how you started Divert with the idea, with the problem, if you think that that might be the key in the equation, starting with a problem and then seeking solution sets that might be multifaceted helps create a landscape where you can find profitability, but also impact. It's a fair question. I, I, I don't know if it's the solution. I think it worked for us and it worked for this environment. I think it, it where it becomes really helpful is when we think about how to grow the business and how to scale the business. Not being wed to one idea and one way of doing things allows you to find different paths to scaling and finding unique innovation. And so you know, Ryan and I, from really early on, that, that commitment to finding innovation, finding unique solutions to get at this core problem we developed an RFID solution. We developed you know, really interesting software to create data and shine light in retailers' back rooms. Like all of that stuff, if we thought of ourselves simply as an anaerobic digestion company, we would never have gotten there. And so to get to the point where we are today about, you know, where we look at our roles to protect the value of food, that is a much broader umbrella with a lot of different tools and solutions underneath there. And it allows us to tackle a, a much more complex problem like this rather than had we simply you know, started with a technology and stayed hyper-focused on delivering that technology to customers. So it worked really effectively for us. Sure. If you um, were mentoring a, a young entrepreneur or founder who was about to jump in and try to build something that had impact alongside profitable success, I'm curious what kinds of advice you might give to that young person. Don't do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> am I allowed to say don't do it? I always laugh because my 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 wonderful wife always along the way would say, you know, sort of ask questions on on the business, and I would I would always say, oh, we're three months away. We're three months from having this thing everything everything going right. So I think we were three months away for you know at least 16, 16 years and, right. and, and into the future. <laughs> 
but I tell you, I say that because I like entrepreneurship. It's definitely a journey. It's it's definitely a rocky journey. We had lots of lows. You know, we've had lots of highs. And so when I think about advice for people who want to get into the space, you know, it's always to make sure you're following what you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about this or passionate about your idea, then by all means do it because ultimately the people who are passionate about it will figure out ways to make it work. And the people who are doing it for other reasons, um, you know, those, they may still work as well, but ultimately I think it's, it's harder to get through those low points if you don't truly love the work you're doing and are truly passionate about the idea. So my advice always is, is, is it's a little lame and cliche, but you know, make sure what you're doing follows your passions and, and be really curious. Curiosity is, is such a critical driver for us because it means that you're always willing to ask questions. You're always trying to understand if we're on the right track, what else could we be doing? How can we drive value? How am I impacting my team members? That curiosity is really critical because it creates unique opportunities to change course and alter your how you interact with everybody else. And those have been key moments along our way is, is, is to allow us to find those different paths because we, because we've been curious. Right. It's, I'm a, a big fan of the growth mindset kind of perspective, which, which is interesting hearing you say you were always three months away. Cause I feel like that's a very growth mindset oriented way to look at the world and the, the product and the company and what you're building and what you're working on for yourself, whatever the case may be. It's like that we're always three months away. I didn't, uh, so I've got three kids, nine, 11, 13, and I'm not sure I fully understood the growth mindset until I started learning along with them. And you start to understand you know, what that means and what it means to make mistakes and what it means to fix those mistakes and be comfortable with that. And so it's super important. I think it's super important for everybody, but it's definitely important for entrepreneurs is to, is to be able to learn, make mistakes, try not to repeat them and be comfortable with that process because it is painful. I think we'd all love not to be wrong, <laughs> wrong. but you know, I, I think it's a painful process, but it, in some ways it's the only way to go about it. It's the only way you can actually get through this journey is to be comfortable with that, those mistakes and that, and that learning growth mindset. I find, and even listening in, in your last answer, the entrepreneurial journey to be one of, that requires a little bit of extra optimism or perhaps naivete, I'm not sure. But I think it's it's interesting. I think it's actually relevant, particularly when you're building organizations that that seek impact, to seek to have impact. Every day we see the news, and it's oftentimes filled with with negative headlines. And I think a lot of folks come away thinking, no matter what we do, we can't make an impact. It's just too much, too much negativity for one person to solve it. I'm curious how you stay hopeful in that context. I'm curious how you with you know three kids at that impressionable age are, are modeling optimism and hopefulness. The phrase that I often use is how do you defeat defeatism? Um, I'm curious how you look at that. I like that phrase. Look, it's a cha- we're in a we're in a challenging environment. There's there's a lot of lot of pain out there for everybody for all sorts of different reasons. And I think for us, what we can do is we can take one step forward every day in fighting a problem that is meaningful for us. And so when we think about divert, like we can't be thinking about solving every, every problem in the world and every issue, but we can think about what we do really well and what we build a team of people who are all really smart and passionate and all do really well together is 
food waste. And we're not going to solve it today. We're not going to solve it tomorrow. But what step can we do to make a difference in that journey in what we're creating? And so I think for me personally, to be able to focus on on that next step, on those next few steps, on you know the micro successes every single day that we have throughout our organization is really uplifting. You know, it, to me, it is actually uplifting in a small way. And I think at times, if I when I pull my head up to look at the whole environment, it can be a little I don't know, a little gloomy, as you said. But when I then get in, into what's actually happening on the ground level and what people are doing, what innovations we're bringing and, and steps we're making with our customers to drive improvement, I get really excited. And then when I think about every single company like us that's doing that and all the steps that we're taking, to me, that momentum that is, that is building is what ultimately turns the tide here uh, uh, to make a difference. And so I get very excited by, by that journey, that process. You mentioned the fact I've got three kids. Like I see it from them. They come home and say, you know, how are we going to do this? And we and we talk a lot about it. We talk about what the work Divert's doing. And you know, that's been a fun process for us is to sort of share the day-to-day actions and decisions that are happening here and how how they would do it. For me, that has been a, a small way to kind of share this journey and share uh, the work we're doing and hopefully foster sort of the next generation of, of people who continue to care about, you know, mission work. Yeah. As we just wrap up, I'm curious where listeners who want to support your work or learn more, where, where can they go to find out more and engage with Divert and the work you guys are doing? Go to our website, divertinc.com. Lots of information there. Our marketing team does an amazing job. But go to our website. Like we're always looking for, for smart, hungry, passionate people. Um, love to engage with those, with those folks. We're always looking for new people and, and, and would welcome folks who want to join our mission to check it out and, and see if there's a fit here. Awesome. A big thanks to Nick Whitman for joining me on today's episode. Visit divertinc.com to find out more about Nick and Divert's innovative food waste technology. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you next week. This episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Hergel, and Patrick Gallagher. Consensus In Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave us a like or rating. It really helps us out. And if you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.